This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations. Tonight is part of our ongoing series about 21st century families, and I'm going to be talking with Katherine Anderson about interracial domestic adoption. Our country is currently headed by an African-American president who was raised by a single white woman. So this subject is on people's minds and are really interesting to people. Catherine's story is a little different in that she um, adopted her son, Sam. Catherine Maurice Anderson is an anti-racist alley, a single parent by design, poet, freelance writer, and public school teacher in Portland, Maine. Her interracial family came together through domestic adoption and also donor-assisted conception, although we're not going to be talking about her second child tonight. Her poetry and essays have appeared in Hip Mama magazine, Adoptive Families magazine, and she's a featured writer in the Adoption Constellation Quarterly. Catherine blogs at mamacandtheboys.com. Welcome to Safe Space. Thank you. Let's start with one of your poems. I'd love to hear you read Black Enough for me to get us started. I'd love to. Black Enough. I wrote this in 2007. Black Enough. I can't wait to tell you, Sam, that when you were just two, one of my very black students asked me why I went all the way to North Carolina to have you. I can't wait to describe to you the look on that student's face when I told him that I didn't have you like his mom had him, but that your birth mother placed you in my arms in the hospital in North Carolina on Christmas Eve as she smiled bravely and kissed you. Oh, what? he asked. And then, it's not that I thought you were black, black, he proclaimed, but I thought you were black enough to have him. Black enough? Black enough. True, I wondered if I was black enough to walk through the door of Cordell's barbershop that first time six months ago to get your black and curly hair cut properly. What would they think of me? And I can tell you that I am just black enough to keep walking in that door where all the men in that barber shop who have never asked me my name call you by yours. Hey, Sammy, my man, and what's up, boss? They ask you as you strut right up to Cordell's chair to demand a lollipop for a line it up and black enough to notice as they stare at me and stare at me as if by looking just a little longer, I might become black enough to them too. Black enough to notice that now I own many more brown and black sweaters and shirts and brown corduroys, too, because I must want you to think I'm a little more black and a little more like you. Black enough, Sam, to know that I'll never be black enough. And because of that, I must never forget that you are. Catherine, thank you so much for that. I want to start before that trip to North Carolina, when you received Sam in your arms, and to ask you... You know, this is a brave decision. We live in a country that is still so racist in so many ways. How did you decide to adopt Sam, and what were some of the hopes and fears that you had about it? Oh, um, you know, people often say, well, that was brave of you, or how did you? And I think I was pretty oblivious to the bravery piece. I was more determined that I was going to start, that I could do this. I could start a family on my own. I had read about women who design their families by choice through adoption or donor. And I had known for about five years that this was going to happen. And I put myself in a place, you know, physically, emotionally, financially, 
I was ready. So I marched in to the adoption agency and said, how do I go about this, this adoption by myself thing? And uh, they treated it with such normalcy that sort of the fear piece went away quite quickly. And the process, it was clearly meant to be as the process took me only six months where for others it had lasted a lot longer. So my being a single parent was actually, in my case, an asset because Sam's birth mother stated very clearly in her choice to pick me that she wanted someone to raise her son who was as much like her as possible. So she chose me over several couples. So who knew, right? This thing that we feel we have to apologize for turned out to be this great asset. Right, right. That's wonderful. And did then, so you chose a domestic interracial adoption, and did then, did you have kind of commitments and hopes about what it would be like for you as a white woman to raise a boy, a, an African-American boy? What, what was your, before you hit reality set in, what were you imagining? I was so naive. I, I had, I had no idea. Yeah, I went to my little you know, adoption ed classes. And I got to hear a couple people talk about what it might be like to raise a child of color. And I had this completely romanticized vision. And I was going to be, you know, I mean, I, I almost think I went about it for all the wrong reasons. And because of that, set myself up for a lot more learning. And I say that because shortly before I made the decision, a friend of a friend called me up and said, I hear you're thinking about blah, blah, blah. And I had heard about her and, and that she's someone I should connect with because she was a transracial or interracial parent. And she said, I'm going to tell you one thing. I don't know you. I don't have to like you. And love is not enough. And get that through your head right now. And I thought, who does she think she is? I've read my books. I've read my articles. I know what I'm doing. Love is enough. And I love to tell that story because it's not. It was not enough. I was woefully unprepared, and I, I had no idea what was involved in looking at my own, my own white minds, my own internalized racism, and all the things I, I didn't know before embarking on this. So let's talk about that. Love is not enough. Not enough for what? To this, this is my viewpoint, that to have a child of a different race and to say, well, I, I love him and he's my son, he's my boy, so it doesn't matter that you see him as brown or it doesn't matter that he's black because I don't, I don't see that. And this whole idea of this colorblind, the, the idea that if you really love your child, you don't see his color. To me, that is not loving your child. That is only seeing what you are able to see in this world and your experience. So in that way, it doesn't eclipse what, how he is viewed in the world, his experience, and all the things that I will never know about being a young black man, a, a teenager, a, young, a, a black man walking down the street and watching a woman who could be me cross the street because she thinks he's after her or is going to steal her purse or means ill intent. In all the ways I've seen it already, and he's only six, that his skin color gives people unconscious permission to treat him differently. Do you see that happening? Oh, oh yeah. I'd love to hear. Maybe you could tell me a story about that. You know, I, I think 
It's a lens that you look at. You look at situations that happen. For example, going to get shoes for him at at the department store and waiting waiting for us to be helped and noticing that the clerk has caught my eye and I smile and I wave and oh great here here he's coming here just wait one more second love have here he comes here he comes and rounding the corner and seeing my kid and looking around as if to see where the real kid is supposed to be because he came to help fit the shoes on the little white boy or the little white girl and then seeing my son thinking oh I'm going to serve this child I mean that's my take on it and I have felt that it was recently it's just like Yes, and you're going to put that smile right back on your face, and you're going to kneel down on one knee, and you're going to take his shoe off, and you're going to make him feel like a prince, and I'm that way your store is going to get my valuable $48. <laughs> and, and that was a scene that absolutely was happening. So you watch his face, his, the, the clerk, you watch his whole demeanor change. His whole demeanor change. And yes. knowing that he suddenly isn't sure how to relate to me because he's in a different relationship with, with my child, and his expectations were thrown. So let's imagine that together, because I'm curious to know, like, what are you telling yourself that that shift in his demeanor means? Like, what what do you imagine it means? Um, that, well, maybe it means, you know, I, I could be, I, I guess the story that runs through my head is this man, th- this clerk suddenly isn't comfortable with people of color. This clerk thinks that my black husband is right around the corner and he might not be as comfortable dealing with my black husband as he is with me. And this clerk might just have no experience and might have just literally been surprised, but he might not feel as willing or able to serve us. And I'm so hypersensitive for those kind of experiences that that might not have been going through his mind at all. And he might just have his own adoption story that got triggered when he saw me, you know, and, and maybe he's adopted. But I think I see these moments and I've, I've seen them in, in little situations where there might be something on a playground, for example, where my son is running really fast after another child and maybe captures them before three other kids did. And the parents bristle and come up and say, okay, everyone's playing too rough. Stop the game. And I'm thinking, it was fine 15 seconds ago when that little boy who's the same size and age and just speed as my son tackled the little girl. But when the black boy did, it's too rough and we stop. So here are these moments, these sort of micro moments that I'm guessing happen to you like almost every day or so commonly. And I'm, I'm guessing they stir up all kinds of feeling in you. How do you respond when you witness that? Or how do you have fantasies of <laughs> comebacks that you might offer that you don't? Right. I, you know, I, I think about when I think about the whole like the whole grocery store and adoptive parents talk all the time about being in the grocery store and being stared at and people asking questions like how much did you pay for your child or is he yours or he's so cute if I knew I was going to get one as cute as him um, I would I would have adopted too and I, I think in these situations or situations like the playground I've evolved a lot as a parent. I used to think I had to put on that really great adoption face and I was going to educate people and I was going to teach them how to appropriate adoption language and positive adoption language and, and that this child can hear things and please be more respectful. And now I'm, I'm more like, yeah, he's mine. Is that your kid? And I just turn into this, I get fierce, I get angry and I just mirror right back like, 
this is a human being and, and, and you, you must take responsibility for your insensitivity. And it's and in the playground, in situations where I feel that if it's an, an environment with people I know, educators, uh, if it's people in, in French circles, a swimming lesson, a coach, then I'm more inclined to sit down with that person and make an appointment and say, this is what I noticed. This is how I interpret it. This is how my son might have taken it. Is it possible that blah, blah, blah? Is this something that I could support you in thinking about a little differently? And I will take those opportunities if I feel that this is a relationship that is going to continue to evolve. And I'm wondering if part of why, I mean, the way you just presented that sounds so effective and so positive and sort of focused on making it better. And I'm curious to know, um, you use the phrase in your blog, Mama C and the Boys, about white mind and your own increasing awareness of how uh, we as white people raised in this society, you know, in imbibe this kind of all this set of unconscious assumptions about race. And I'd love to hear about how your own how you've noticed that in yourself um, so that you have so much to offer others because you've learned it internally. You know, and I, I'd love to say I've learned it internally. I think I am just on like, I'm on square one. And I think one of the best parts of being an anti-racist ally is being really comfortable for myself and being in square one. Because when I first adopted Sam, I thought I was like in square five because I did it. <laughs> I was going to be a mother of a, of a brown skin child. So uh, because of that, I thought that I had come so far. And now I would say my my square one is that I'm noticing all the time when assumptions are coming up for me. For example, uh, last summer I was I was at a, a local pool and we were heading into the pool and there was a car that was parked right next to mine. And it was this beautiful big, shiny red pickup truck. And it was, there are all these great details, a silver chrome. And it was really like, I don't know what the word is, like souped up, like decked out truck. And we're going in and I, in my head, I pictured the owner of that truck. And that owner was a Hispanic man. And I had his whole, I had his whole life story because of that truck. So when the woman who came out and owned that truck got in that (laughs) truck, who looked a lot like me, this switch went off. I was like, wow, this whole story, the Hispanic men buy these trucks. They make them look really nice because they care so much about their trucks. And it went on and on. And so I guess it's a constant noticing and saying, wow, yeah, there it goes again. There it goes again. And it's a constant giving myself permission that I came by it all honestly. And it's just about calling it out for myself. I mean, that's where I have to start. And what I hear is that in some ways you're not ashamed, like you're affirming that that's just the case. You came by it. Honestly, I'm not hearing you feel really guilty and bad about that. No, and I'm sure I did. And I think I've come a long way because Sam has taught me, he's taught me so much. And I see, I see his, his mannerisms, his, who he is as a young man, how he picks up, like he does these, he'll put on, I'm so inadequate in providing musical background for my children and it's such it's a great thing that I have all these musicians in our lives because otherwise they they would suffer greatly but they you Sammy will watch another a, a young black man playing uh you know music or he, he so he's been acting out these really sort of like you know his shoulders go up and he gets his fingers crossed he's like yo 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 mama more ketchup more ketchup yo mama more ketchup and I'm <laughs> you know I'm laughing at him and I'm thinking 
So where did he pick up this, what I see is this really like sort of young black male affect. And then I think... kind of like rap talk. Yeah, it's rap talk. And part of me is like, did I teach him that? Where's he learning that? Is it okay? Is it, oh, this is good. This means he's okay. It doesn't matter. I I haven't messed everything up. And it's, so it's a constant. So I'd love to ask about that because I think it's, of course, a universal mother fear that we're going to mess everything up. (laughs) And then you have these like extra pieces to it because you're a single mom, you're a white mom of an African-American boy, and you're also a mother who's adopted her child. So you've got like these three extra things. And I'm curious, um, you know, and I guess let's focus particularly on the aspect of race, but the kind of good enough feeling. I think we Mm. all struggle to feel good enough as moms, but do you have struggles around, can I be, can I help him feel safe enough in the world? Can I prepare him to cope with racism when I'm not experiencing it in the same way myself? Or how does that good enough fear come up for you? Um, You know, it it comes up all the time. And I think, how does it, how do I experience it is recently, I mean, I, I've actually given myself and my readers on the blog can would probably attest to this that I've given myself some real permission to say I'm actually making some really good progress around creating for my family a very rich a racially rich family you know family of 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 choice and that my kids have many men and women of color in their life. And uh, we go out to dinner and we travel together and we do many things of all ages, men and women through marriage, through, and and friends, a lot of friends sort of in their 20s and 30s. And I was out with a, a good friend of mine, Hassan, and the boys over the summer. And I brought up this to him. And I said, I look at you and I think, I want my boy spending much more time with you. I want you to make up for all the lacks that I cannot. <laughs> and they look at and he's a musician and he and he went to Bowdoin and he's a composer and he's this gentle soul and he's all these things that I imagine this is going to be the perfect role model. And he said to me, he was so reassuring and he's like, Catherine, what are you talking about? You love these boys. You're showing them the world. They're going to be fine. They are your boys. They are black men, and they are your boys, and they're going to be fine. And, of course, I ascribed all this power to him. I'm like, well, if he said so. Right, right. No, He's the authority. But, but I guess knowing that I have reached out with such intention, and I just have to keep doing that. And I can never sit on my on that one. I just have to keep, keep, keep creating larger family, larger experiences, and opportunities for the boys to have their own relationships so they get to check out the things that I'm messing up on. And do you talk to Sam about race? And if you do, how does that conversation go? Like, have you been talking about it with him since you were he was little? And tell me a little bit about how you actually name race with Sam. Well, most, you know, books and movies are a great example for us, um, for both the boys. But for Sam, recently there was a movie that came out that features, it's a, it's a bird in Brazil, and I want to say blue or I guess the bird is brought to Brazil in the thought of he will mate with this other bird in some sanctuary. And what we noticed, I got the book because the the movie book, the book about it, and because I noticed the name of his younger brother was in the book, and I was very excited. And as we were looking through it's one of these little Disney books, I realized that the only the bad guys in the book were all the natives from Brazil, and they're all brown skin, and that all the good guys were white. And so... We're halfway through the book. I said, all right, I'm done. And Sam's like, what are you talking about? I said, what do you notice? And they're so 
versed in mama's thinking. And by the end of it, they were disgusted. You know, we went through the whole book. I said, so what is the message? What are you getting when you read this and you have brown skin? He says that we steal things. I was like, yeah. And some people might think you're not having that conversation with him. But I want to because I want him to be as be able to say, well, mommy, I want to watch the movie. Like, okay, you can watch the movie, but not until we've had this conversation. So, and you know, we'll go to, we'll go to restaurants now and he tries it on. He's like, mommy, do we have to eat here? There's only people with white skin in this restaurant. And we've gotten up and left. I mean, it's, you might say, well, good luck in Maine, but there's plenty, you know. of <laughs> might of, be doing a lot of walking at dinner time. We're doing a lot of walking. <laughs> but we actually find restaurants that have families that more often look like us and we go back. So, yes, we were talking about it. And we, you know, the kids have their markers. They go in and book they really like the color of the faces of the characters so they're brown skin characters too yes we talk about it all the time and and he I take my cues from him too and he's more and more able and maybe he's trying grown up speech but I'd rather give him the language to practice with than have someone else give him that language I want to ask you now about the open adoption part of this because I understand as it, as I heard you know that his birth mother read about you chose you because you were like her met you and then has had some ongoing connection. I'd love to ask how that is for you um, as his mom. It's, you could talk for hours on the topic, but I, I think uh, knowing her and having her, knowing that she will be available to him as he grows up and that they will, I see my relationship with her its primary fo- function focus was cultivating a nurturing relationship. So as Sam got older and he wanted to explore more of a relationship with her, that I had built every part of that bridge, that I had made sure that bridge was strong and created that opportunity. And I think in some ways I didn't have the skill set, and I'm kind of backpedaling now, to create a, an authentic relationship with her first. So, Yourself. Yes. And that... And we never, we never really hit that. Off. We never really hit it off as I, I kind of fantasize we might, and that we'd be the sort of like sisters, even though I was fifteen years older. But that we would really come together and have this real simpatico, and it was always strained. And I don't think because of the adoption, actually, it's just our temperament was really different. Um, whereas one of my best friends who came down there with me to to help me in this whole process, they hit it off like, you know, just laughter and they were having jokes and they were so easy with each other. And I joke with this friend and I say, you know, I I think if it hadn't been for you, Sammy may not be in my life because she was so comfortable with her. Whereas I was nervous and tense and I was thinking I'm not the person she wants me to be. And over the years, you know, it's evolved. It goes through periods of quiet and goes through periods of great activity and text messages. What size is he wearing now? What does he like? Want to send him this? Pictures of her children doing things that they love. You know, we, we come together quite, she boasts about her children. I boast about mine. You know, we, that piece has really always been easy for us. And I, I think we've got a lot, we've got a lot of room to grow. And I've just recently wrote her a letter saying, I think I, I think I, I think we've got a lot of work to do, and I, I want to do that. I want, to, I want this relationship to be stronger, and I want to know your ideas for how that would look. Because I, I've been so cautious all along to do it the way she would like, and I haven't put myself into, into this relationship. I've been so, I, wanted to, I want to make sure she knows I'm the good mother, and I'm doing my best. And, and, and 
her son is great and he's thriving and it's everything she could have possibly wanted. I've, I've been such a caretaker of her that I haven't really found an authentic relationship with her yet. But I believe it's, it can be there as we both grow up and grow into this. I can, I can so appreciate that. It's like still wanting her to keep choosing you. Yeah. Yeah. As if she has the power one day to say, you know what? This, my mind. this is not. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, Catherine, we're going to have to stop, but I'd love to end with asking you to read that poem again. I loved it so much, and I, I always enjoy hearing a poem for the second time because I can really savor it. Thanks. I'm black enough. I can't wait to tell you, Sam, that when you were just two, one of my very black students asked me why I went all the way to North Carolina to have you. I can't wait to describe to you the look on that student's face when I told him that I didn't have you like his mom had him, but that your birth mother placed you in my arms in the hospital in North Carolina on Christmas Eve as she smiled bravely and kissed you. Oh, what? he asked. And then, no, it's not that I thought you were black, black he proclaimed, but I thought you were black enough to have him. Black enough? Black enough? True, I wondered if I was black enough to walk through the door of Cordell's barbershop that first time six months ago to get your black and curly hair cut properly. What would they think of me? And I can tell you that I am just black enough to keep walking in that door where all the men in that barbershop who have never asked me my name call you by yours. Hey, Sammy, my man, and what's up, boss? They ask you as you strut right up to Cordell's chair to demand a lollipop for a line it up and black enough to notice as they stare at me and stare at me as if by looking just a little longer I might become black enough to them too. Black enough to notice that now I own many more brown and black sweaters and shirts and brown corduroys too because I must want you to think I am a little more black and a little more like you. Black enough, Sam, to know that I'll never be black enough. And because of that, I must never forget that you are. Catherine Anderson, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Thank you. If you want to read some of Catherine's work, some of her poems, read some of the articles that she's published, or be subscribed to her ongoing blog, you can find her at Mama C and the Boys, no spaces, Mama C and the Boys. Com. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodston for doing the music, the mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for doing the music, and Neil McKenty for being my consultant. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety or send it to a friend who absolutely needs to hear all of it, you can go to the website at www.safespaceradio.com. And you can also find us, and I hope like us, on Facebook. Coming up next is Watchdog. <laughs>